We're talking today about the heavy burden of guilt. The heavy burden of guilt. We're in the middle of a light and easy sermon series, and we cannot get through the sermon series without talking about the burden of guilt that is on every single one of us, especially those of us who have been raised in church. Every one of us carries guilt. Every one of us carries shame. And to one degree or another, we are defined by that because guilt and shame are defining things. They're weights that we have that nobody really sees, but we see it, and we carry it, and we feel it, and it is very, very deep in our soul. Guilt can identify us. Guilt condemns us. Guilt prevents us from thriving in our relationships with one another. It prevents us from thriving in our own souls and our own being. It prevents us from thriving in our relationship with God. That's why when Jesus came to the earth, he looked at a whole world that was under this heavy burden of guilt. He called it a yoke, a big heavy bar that stands over our shoulders, that bears us down and keeps us from thriving. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, he says, take my yoke upon you. I'm giving you a new yoke. It is not heavy. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And that's what we're trying to experience over this six-week series. How can we live this easy and light life that Jesus offers all of us? But every single one of us, to one degree or another, are prevented from living that easy and light life because of guilt, because of shame, because of condemnation that we carry. Now, guilt comes from all over the place. I mean, you can't live a day in your life without guilt being piled on you in some way. There's the guilt that comes from failure. We'll call this failure guilt, right? None of us are perfect. All of us do something wrong. And when we do something wrong, we have this very natural emotion of guilt. Now, failure guilt has a good place in life. In fact, if somebody does something wrong and doesn't feel any guilt at all, they're called sociopaths. It's a mental illness that needs help, usually locking away someplace, right? It, it is very, very dangerous to not feel guilt when it comes to our failures. Uh, failure can result, should result in guilt, a healthy guilt that has some good things happen as a result. For example, when you've done something wrong, there's a remorse, a feeling of guilt, a feeling of remorse, which compels us to make an apology to the one we offended. And then we can restore and reconcile and bring that relationship together, which results in a change of heart and then a change of action. So failure guilt in its proper place can actually be a very good thing. When I was a teenager, I found my parents' cash stash and I took it, like a couple hundred bucks. And I got busted, I got caught. And because I got caught, I uh, had to confess. And I confessed and you know, it's easy to confess after you get caught. But I felt bad, it really did feel bad. I felt terrible and I uh, paid it back and we worked a whole plan and I made, made the apology, had a change of heart and I never took anything again, as far as you know. <laughs> Failure guilt has a very good quality to it and it can be very healthy. Uh, if it's born too much and if we don't forgive ourselves and if we don't get past that, then it could have some damaging impacts for sure. But failure guilt can have a, have a good uh, element to it. Then there's family guilt. Family guilt is horrific. Family guilt is horrific. Every family is operated by guilt to some degree or another. You might have heard things like, you know, you never think of me, right? Why do you get to do what you want to do and I don't get what I want to do? I feel like I'm the only one committed to this family. Nobody's quite as committed as I am. I'm so tired for all that I do for this family. Fine, I guess if that's important to you, then just go ahead and do it, right? Uh, do you hate my mother? I guess you hate my mother. <laughs> I've been asked that question. <laughs> Don't hate your mother. 
When it comes to sports, you know, dads can be notorious at this. Come alongside your kid. Hey, come on. What's your problem? You know, I know you can do better. What's wrong with you? And the kids know the only reason why you want them to succeed is because you want them to make you look good. Maybe not the only reason. That's a big one. Kids know that. Then there's school. Why don't you ever apply yourself? I know you're smarter than this, which is a not so subtle way of saying maybe you're not that smart. This is just little ways we use guilt, and guilt is an invisible but lethal emotional tool that we use on each other, the ones we love so much. Now, family guilt is very effective. It's a tool that we can use to get people to do what we want them to do. It is very effective, right? But what it does is it replaces the bond of relationship with a bond of resentment, a bond of resentment. And family guilt, some families operate in a culture of guilt. You're just, you're always resentful of one another because you're always manipulating each other through guilt. Family guilt is nearly impossible to break. I've done a lot of family, you know, pastoral counseling around here. And when families come in with, for counseling and when there's a culture of guilt, I pretty much don't assume the parents are able to get rid of a culture of guilt. So you look at the kids and just say, hey, cope with it. You've got to cope with it as you grow up. And then when you have kids, you've got to commit to not ingrain a culture of guilt in your own home. It is almost impossible to break. Family guilt weighs heavy, very, very heavy. And then there's religious guilt, religious guilt. And religious guilt is very devastating because religious guilt impacts our worldview unlike anything else. When we are indoctrinated, particularly when we're young, when we're indoctrinated in religious guilt, it colors everything throughout life and it is nearly inescapable. And so that's why when Jesus came to the world, he looked at a world that was heavy laden, heavy burdened with religious guilt. And he says, we've got to get rid of this. We've got to eradicate this evil force off the face of the earth. It is so devastating, especially since the name of God is used. So we're using God's name to load up people, particularly children, with guilt so that we can manipulate them to do what we want them to do. It's a terrible force on the earth. An anonymous author writes this about his experience in church, and he is no longer in church. He defines himself as your friendly skeptic neighbor. He says, I've long known that guilt has weighed on me since I was a child, but I've just recently become aware that many of my peers also share this same guilt and struggle with the very same thoughts and emotions that I struggle with. Where did these feelings of guilt come from? He says, I grew up in a conservative Christian church, and I distinctly remember why I became a Christian. I was completely motivated by fear and guilt. I wanted so badly to avoid hell that I was willing to do anything to make sure I didn't go there. I was 12 years old at the time, a preteen just then struggling with thoughts of death and eternal punishment. Of all the adults I knew, they were talking about sin and hell and the unworthiness of mankind as though they were undisputable facts. The message was repeated on a weekly basis. Humans are worthless and the human nature is sinful. And even one step over this ambiguous line of sin would condemn us. Even normal parts of growing up, normal thoughts and experiences would condemn us. Sexually confusing thoughts would condemn us. Feeling sad or depressed would be a lack of faith. Having questions about the Bible, questions about faith or some doubts, you couldn't bring that up anywhere. Going through puberty, masturbation, or even having a sexual thought of sin was the same as committing the act itself. The load on me was heavy. Naturally, there was no question in my mind that hell was real and that I was going there. As a victim of sexual assault in my youth from an older neighbor boy, it weighed on me. The shame of that convinced me I was going to burn in hell. I lied from time to time, so I was condemned. Sometimes I lost my temper, so I was condemned. I was going through puberty and was told my thoughts about girls would condemn me as well. I was doomed. 
So unsurprisingly, I did what every authority figure around me said I needed to do. So at the age of 12, I was baptized and committed the rest of my life to follow after the perfection of Jesus. He was, after all, perfect, and we were told to imitate him, so perfection was our goal. It's no wonder that I and many of my peers struggle with self-doubt and anxiety. From the time we can form our first rational thought, we are bombarded with messages about how in the eyes of God we're not good enough, we're not worthy of his love. Any little sin we commit is responsible for the horrific death of Jesus. Because of our sin, we could burn in hell forever. And the Bible does say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. When the stakes are this high, and the authority figures are sending this message on a weekly basis, what other option does a boy have? We have to believe or burn. We have to obey or burn. We are enslaved to guilt, to shame, and to the endless striving for perfection. He says, I'm now in my 30s, and I'm just now starting to figure out how to process a life not driven by guilt. I know this will be a process, but I'm glad that I have at least started to be free from the burdens I've been carrying my whole life. I hope to be able to help others who may be a bit behind me in this journey. We were robbed of our emotional well-being when we were lied to and told we were unworthy of love and happiness. I guarantee some of this story has been your experience to some degree or another. Guarantee it. Because guilt is the language we speak. Guilt that comes sort of naturally from our failures, but guilt that is loaded on in our families and guilt that is loaded on in church. Now, this gentleman found freedom from guilt by leaving the church, and so many people do. So many people find more love and acceptance outside the church than inside the church, and this cannot stand, especially because of what Jesus came to do. He came to, to free us from religious guilt, free us from being identified and tagged as guilty, shameful, unworthy, unlovable, condemned. He came to free us from that burden, and yet you go to Jesus' church, and it is loaded on you again and again and again. That's why Galatians 5, 1, and Galatians is the book of freedom. If you are weighed down with guilt at all, go to Galatians. The Apostle Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is so easy to go back to slavery, to go back to guilt, to, to go back to feeling unworthy and unloved, to go back to feeling condemned by God because of what we've done. It's so easy. This is the disease of the church. It's a pandemic. It's the disease of the church that Jesus came to cure, but we keep going back to the disease. It's so easy. So what's the diagnosis? If this is the disease, what's the diagnosis? How did we get to the point where we are suffering under the weight of guilt? Well, first of all, it has to do with this. We think our sin separates us from a perfect God. We think our sin separates us from a perfect God. If you've spent more than five minutes in church, you have heard this. Our sin separates us from a perfect God. And, and if this is true, then there's a very obvious and very understandable reason why guilt and shame is the culture of the church, because our sin separates us from God. So we've got to eradicate the sin, right? And in fact, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, no doubt if you've been raised in church, uh, you've memorized this passage that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we know this passage, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So my sin, my failures must separate me from God. This is the identity we give to children. You are a sinful person separated from God with a sinful nature separated from God. Your sin separates you from God. We say that to little children and we ingrain this in the formative years of youth. Secondly, 
If we think sin separates us from God, then we must think our holiness makes us acceptable to a perfect God. If our sin separates us from a perfect God, then our holiness, holiness, for those of you who might be new, is a religious word for saying our goodness, our rightness, our perfection, right? Our morality. If we think sin separates us from God, then we must think our holiness makes us acceptable to God. I heard a message from a um, pretty well-respected pastor in the area, and I was cringing during the message, wondering if we were going to have a good punchline or a bad punchline. He brings out a stick, and he puts the stick really low, and he asks somebody to come and jump over the stick, and they jump over the stick. Hey, good job. Everybody claps. You raise the stick a little higher, now jump. Raise the stick a little higher, now jump. They raised the stick about this high, and this teenager jumped over the stick, and everybody, woo, this is awesome. Then I'm waiting for the punchline. You know what the punchline was? In order for us to obey God more, the bar has to be raised higher and higher and higher. That's the punchline. That sermon was preached very recently in a very large church. And we might know the name of that large church. Cringed. The higher we jump for God, the happier he is. This is the message of religion. And it comes out in so many ways, right? And uh, for the, again, for those of you who are raised in church, some of this stuff you know, may, may be very familiar to you. First of all, there's the Big Ten, the Big Ten Commandments, right? God's expectations, God's law, God's standards. These are, these are pretty gnarly just in and of themselves, right? Then there's not only the Big Ten of our outward deeds, then there's the heart, the heart, God looks at the heart. So you've got to avoid anger and hate and discontent content and selfishness and pride and laziness and all this stuff. All the in, can't doubt, can't question. There's all this internal stuff. The heart's got to be pure. Then there is the Christian church's weird obsession with sex. Now, some of these things are, are great and fine and have a high calling for our sexuality, but a lot of this stuff is just kind of nitpicking sexuality. Oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, can't, can't, can't. Then there's the don'ts. You must avoid all kinds of stuff, lying, cursing, all kinds of bad habits. Uh, you got it. You can't do any of that. Definitely don't listen to non-Christian music. How many times, child of the 80s, did we burn our cassette tapes? You young people are going, I don't even know what a cassette tape is. And then there's the do's. You got to be faithful. You got to love. You got to be a great parent, right? You got to be an uh, obedient child. And there's all kinds of roles that come up in church. And here's what the wife's supposed to do. And here's what the husband's supposed to do. All these things that you have to be do to be faithful and good. And then there's all the disciplines of the church, and the church has a bunch of things you got to do. Go to church weekly, read the Bible, pray, give 10%, submit to authority, serve, participate in small groups, help the poor, missions work. If you're super spiritual, you go overseas in the mission field, right? All these church expectations. And then there's our sense of commitment. We've got to commit. We've got to be all in, sold out, hardcore for God. Count the cost. Give him your all. He's all you need. Obedience to the proof of salvation. You will give an account for everything you've done at the judgment day. Die to self, fully devoted, and absolutely no lukewarm, half-hearted believers. Or you could be cast into hell. This is how we raise Children. Children. And when we grow up, that culture of guilt, that culture of you're not lovable, you're not good enough, you're not accepted as you are, you're only accepted when you jump higher for God, that, that breeds in us a conditional love to the point that when we're old, we're still carrying this, this fear and guilt. A, a friend of mine, pretty good friend of mine, shared with me his definition of faith. Now, this is his definition of faith in Christ. Faith is abhorring sin, repenting from sin, and striving to live a life free from sin. That's his definition of faith. And, and, and I said to him, my God, no. That is the slavery 
of religion. That is this heavy burden that you are carrying around and you've been carrying around since you were born in church. No. This means we have to be holy and we have to earn our acceptance from God. That is not true. Galatians 3.10 says this. All who rely on observing the law, and this is what we teach children and we grow up believing this. We rely on observing the law. We've got to be good for God. We're under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If we believe our holiness and our sinlessness earns anything from God, then we better do the entire thing. We better get it perfectly right. And none of us can. It's a curse. It's a curse. So we're a slave to fear and guilt and threats and condemnation, thinking we have to jump higher and higher for God. And we take that right into adulthood. So I'm going to say something that you might not like. I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I did it last service, and I wasn't tarred and feathered, so I think I'm going to be okay. How is our view of God any different than our view of Kim Jong-un? It's the same. Both have a default of anger and petulance. God's angry. angry. We start with that. He's angry. We're sinners. He's angry. He's mad God. If you please him, he will reward you. If you please God, he will reward you. If you please God, he will bless your life. If you please God, he will answer your prayers. If you please God by your obedience, jumping over that stick, then you will have assurance of eternal life. If you don't, he will condemn you, torture you, burn you. What is the difference? So that's the diagnosis. What is the cure? The cure to this disease of religion is to stop jumping. We've got to stop jumping. Because for a lot of us, especially those of us born and raised in church, we're either trying to jump higher for God, pretending to jump higher for God so that we'll get approved you know, in the church circles, or we've given up altogether like this note we read earlier and say, I'm just done with the whole game. It's a whole game. It's a whole charade. A bunch of people pretending like they're jumping for God, but they're just as much a mess as everybody else, and they can't be honest about it, so I'm out of here, and I'm going to find freedom from this culture of guilt somewhere else. The cure is to stop jumping and believe something different about God. Stop jumping and believe something different about God. I'll give you a little example of this. When I uh, started high school, day number one, everybody said, watch out for teacher Mulholland. Watch out for Mr. Mulholland. This guy is a tyrant in the classroom, and he demands hard work. Math teacher demands hard work. He demands intensity, no distractions in the class, and he will ride you and ride you. His demands are high, and he is mad. So I went into Bill Mulholland's class terrified, terrified of the guy. And as I saw him, I'm like, okay, the guy's pretty intense. He's pretty serious. And I feared him from day one. Uh, week two, he says, hey, I'm looking for some, some uh, uh, kids to work on my avocado farm. He had an avocado ranch. And he says, I need some help. You want to help me? And I thought, well, first of all, I'm terrified. I may not survive. And second of all, I need some money. And so I'm going to do it. But I thought, I thought he's going to bring out the whip and just, just go at it. And I'd just be a slave for you know, the entire time working for him. From the first day I, I worked with him, I discovered that he is a kind man and a gentle man, and he loved everybody in his class, and, and he, he loved students. He loved to watch them grow in life skills and grow in their faith, and he became one of the best friends I've ever had, and he and I met every week for 22 years. An incredible man. I was told he was one thing, and I found some ways to affirm that, but I had to believe something else. 
I had to believe that he was different than what other people were saying about him. And in order for us to be cured from this disease of of guilt and shame and threats and condemnation, we've got to believe something different about God. We've been told he's Kim Jong-un. We have to believe what Jesus says about God. And Jesus says God is a heavenly father, eager to love, eager to forgive, eager to embrace us just as we are and walk with us through life. One with him. No condemnation in Christ. Never leave us, never forsake us. That's what he wants us to believe. And belief is difficult. It is easy for us to believe that we get what we deserve. That's easy, right? That doesn't take any faith at all. God's mad, I'm a failure, I'm doomed. That doesn't take any faith at all. That's easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Faith is about believing what Jesus says. Jesus says God's a heavenly father who loves us and forgives us unconditionally, that accepts us as we are, just as we are, not as he wants us to be, that there is nothing we can do to make him love us anymore. There's nothing we can do to make him love us any less. Just believe that. So here's a question when it comes to the cure of this disease. What if sin isn't an issue at all? What if our behavior isn't an issue at all? What if sin actually doesn't separate us from God? What if we believe that, that our sin doesn't separate us from God? Wouldn't that be kind of a cool thing to wake up to one morning? Wake up one morning just believing that my sin does not separate me from God, that my failures do not separate me from God. What if we just woke up believing that? Well, that's the truth. Colossians 2.13 says this, when you were dead in your sins, weighed down by your sins, God made you alive with Christ. God forgave us all of our sins, having canceled out the law that was against us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Very clear. Not only are our failures removed, but the law that condemns us is removed. Our sin does not separate us from God. If we believe that, if we realize that, if we accept that, if we wake up maybe right here and right now and go, woo, woo, light just went on. My sin doesn't separate me from God. There is no guilt, there is no shame, there is no condemnation. Jesus Christ took all those failures. He took the law that condemned us and he killed it. Sin is gone, it is gone. Sin isn't an issue between us and God, it just simply isn't. Jesus took our sins and the law that condemned us and killed them both. He killed our sins, took the penalty of our sins, and killed the law. We are free, absolutely free. This beam right here that we carry around became the crossbar that he was hung on 2,000 years ago. He paid for our guilt, he paid for our sins, and he even took the law that condemns us and died for it, killed it. Well, what about that verse? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's pretty clear that our sin separates us from God. Read the whole verse. Read the whole verse. We can't just pull that out and have our kids just memorize that little part, which we do. There's a whole verse here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You gotta read the whole thing. It's almost like the apostle Paul, when he wrote this, was, let's get through this as fast as we can. Yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it's not an issue anymore. We are justified, made right, made pure as a gift freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. Redemption means we are brought near. We are brought near. There is nothing that can separate us from God. Your sin cannot separate you from God. End of discussion. Believing that is to live. Bible calls eternal life. Believing that is to live. And so, you know, this is the core rancho message. This is what we preach. This is what we teach. This is it because this is what brings life 
to the world. This is what brings life to us. This is what brings life to relationships and families. This is what redeems and restores communities and the whole world. It is love, the love of Christ that does the job. This is the core message. But inevitably, in a religious culture, this question is asked. As a grace-based church, how does obedience fit in? How does obedience fit in? Isn't obedience important? Well, I would say yes, but I would put a caveat. I put an asterisk there. Is obedience important? Yes, but don't go back to the yoke of slavery, right? Don't go back to religious nonsense. Totally embrace God's love, God's forgiveness unconditionally upon you. Sin does not separate you from God. Jesus Christ took care of that once and for all. You are redeemed, brought near to God. You are justified, made perfect in God's eyes. End of discussion. Now, are we free to obey God's command? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about it in that context. Romans 6, 1 through 2 says this. In light of God's grace, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This is the question of Rancho. We talk about God's grace. Everybody has the same question. Well, does that mean we could just sin without and do whatever we want to do? Well, hold on. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Sin is dead, sin is gone, it is not an issue. It is not an issue. What has risen is love. Sin is dead with Christ, love rises with Christ. So now there's an invitation to obey, but it's not an invitation to navigate hundreds of religious commandments, it's an invitation to be loved, and then what? To love. So when we talk about obedience, we're talking about the freedom to love. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about going back to the endless list of commandments. You see, in Christ, sin died and love rose again. And that's what's said again in Galatians. Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts, the Apostle Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And he's talking about religious people who are navigating all kinds of questions. Should we do this? Should we do this religious thing, that religious thing? Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He goes on later in the chapter. You, my brothers, were called to be free. You're free. There is no burden that you're carrying around. You are free. Your life is easy and light. Your faith is easy and light. Enjoy being loved by God. You're free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Why would you do that? It's dead. It's dead and it's ugly. Why would we go back to that? suppose we could, but why would we do that? Rather, serve one another in love. Love is the better thing. The Apostle Paul says, it is love that compels me. It's not law and guilt and shame and fear that compels me. There's a new compulsion. And the compulsion to do right is not the compulsion of guilt. It's the compulsion of love. I am so loved by God and so loved by a community of faith that I am motivated by love. And I'm going to start loving others. Let's go back real quick to these lists, right? How about the Big Ten? Well, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, Jesus says, all of it is summed up by what? Love. If you love, you're not going to steal. If you love, you're not going to take a person's wife or husband. If you love, you know, you're not going to lie about somebody. Love covers it all. Just worry about love. How about the heart? What about the heart? All these lists of things in our heart. Well, have a heart of, of love, and you'll have a heart of love when you realize how much God loves you. How about sexuality? You know, we're so obsessed with policing other people's sexuality when 97% of the church doesn't do it right, you know? So obsessed with this. How about, how about we understand the gift of sexuality? God gave it as a gift. You know, not just for our pleasure, but to be enjoyed by a married couple who is celebrating the oneness of a covenantal love and expressing that through the oneness of their bodies. It is a wonderful, beautiful thing, right? 
And so instead of telling our kids all they can and cannot do, how about we express the beauty of the gift of sexuality? How about the do not lists? If we replace all the do nots with love, love other people, it covers a multitude of sins, First John says. How about the do's? What are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to love one another, right? We're supposed to be selfless and kind, not because we have to earn God's favor by jumping higher, but because it's a new culture of love and grace. How about the church? Well, the church doesn't become a bunch of uh, managing how we do things right and faithfulness and obedience. Church becomes a community of friends enjoying being loved by God and enjoying loving each other and loving this world that God so loves. How about our commitment? Hardcore, all in, got to do more, got to jump higher? No, very simple. Enjoy being loved by God and enjoy loving others. Isn't that easy and light? Isn't that easy and light? And I will tell you, you line up a bunch of, you know, sin managers over here, and then you line up a bunch of people who are just interested in loving people the way Jesus loves them. What's going to be the result of their lives? This is misery and guilt and judgment, and nobody wants to hang around those people. This is awesome. This is an awesome light, an easy and light life that people want to hang around with. And that life comes from the love of Christ. So does obedience matter? Yes. Not as a way to jump higher from God to earn blessings from this petulant, you know, insecure dictator, but a pleasure to be loved and a pleasure to love. I'm going to read just a a few things from another article. Uh, We started with a man who left the church to find freedom. Here's a woman who stayed in the church and found freedom. In my early years of parenting, she said, we had three boys under five. God bless her soul. She says, I remember feeling like such a failure. This is, you know, kind of mom guilt, family guilt, whatever. I was also afraid of being exposed as a failure. I was sure God's love for me and God's acceptance of me was running dry because of the weakness and the sin that parenting brought to the surface. I needed God like never before, but I was too afraid to admit my need. I was too busy trying to be perfect, not just in my parenting, but every area in my life. Parenting just happened to be the thing that exposed my failures. I knew it was Christ's work that saved me, but I thought it was my work that would keep God smiling on me and blessing me, and my work was a mess. Shame seeped deeper into the crevices of my heart. Shame, you know that thing that robs us of living in the freedom and fullness that God offers? It was drowning me. There's a lie that because I do unlovable things that I'm an unlovable person. It associates what we do with the very essence of who we are. Shame is the merciless critic in our heads that speaks condemnation into our hearts. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We have a merciful Savior who hung on a cross bearing the weight of our shame so that we could walk in freedom. Galatians 5 says Christ has liberated us, so why would we go back to the yoke of slavery? What is this yoke of slavery? It is the burden of the rigorous demands of the law intended to gain God's favor, an intolerable burden for sinful humanity. This can only mean one thing. We have to stop striving for a seal of approval that is already ours. God approves us in Christ and he has set us free from climbing a ladder to God's love. The solution to our shame is never found in our own efforts or striving, but in Christ's perfect forgiving work on a cross. It comes by resting in him and receiving his mercy and grace. To put shame in its rightful place, we have to receive the mercy and grace of God and enjoy the new identity given us by him in Christ. Know you are fully known. He knows your failures. He knows your weakness. He knows your sin, yet you are fully accepted. You are fully known, yet you are fully loved. Not because of anything you do or don't do, but because of everything Jesus Christ has done for you. This means we are free to love and serve God and one another, not in an effort to gain God's approval, but in gratitude for all he's done 
for us in Christ. Right after this service, there's a baptism going on right in our baptism pool right outside these, these doors here. Today might be the day where you place your faith in Christ, not a faith in you becoming more sinless for him, but simply enjoying being loved. And that water that comes over you is the symbol of God's cleansing work, and you can be raised to a new life of love, free from law, free from religious guilt, and hopefully walking a life free from every other guilt that has been placed upon you to truly live a life that is easy and light. As I close in prayer, it's going to be a prayer of simple faith that embraces God's grace. Our God and Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us freely in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you love us unconditionally. Thank you that we don't have to jump higher and higher for you to earn your approval, to earn your acceptance, to earn your blessing, or to earn eternal life. We simply trust that all the work was done by your work of grace through Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you for that free gift. We receive that free gift. Free us from every heavy burden of guilt and shame that has been placed upon us that we would enjoy being loved by you unconditionally and enjoy loving in return. In Christ's name we pray, amen.